Welcome to another episode of Compare and Campaign. Today we have the ninth episode because it's session eight. Boy, that's going to get tricky after a while, and it's already getting tricky. It is the 9th of March, so we're recording episode nine on the 9th. 9th of March, 2020, and I, as always, am Tom Lando. My catchphrase is still, not me. And I am joined by my co-host. Who am I? Where? No, we're not doing that bit anymore. I'm McGill, your co-DM. That was last episode. Yeah, uh, Amnesia pulled our funding, so we're we're freelance now. Um, yeah, McGill's back with me, co-DM. And this is yet another episode of Comparing Campaign. Uh, I don't know about you, McGill, but... Just up until the last minute before we were recording, I was working on Dungeons & Dragons Notes IRL. Just just doing it up. <laughs> I wasn't actually working just on my notes. Right before life. we were recording, I was scrambling to find some content for uh, our segment late in the show. But I did find something pretty cool from the past. The, la- the last thing that I wrote was uh, I said a DC... Uh, what was it? 16 18 i can't remember it was i set a dc for a religion check to identify a demonic symbol it's a six-fingered hand do you know what a six-fingered hand means in dungeons and dragons a six-fingered hand no uh i just keep thinking of gravity falls it's the symbol of gratzd the uh sort of i guess he's like second place demon guy these days He's the he's the demon prince beneath Demogorgon, who's obviously big champ these days. But you know, it changes around. That's that's one of the things about Dungeons and Dragons. Classic Grazd. Classic Grazd, six fingered hand. Whatever the DC was, I'll probably get it. Anyways, I've got an episode, uh, an operation to tell the story of. You've got. A session to tell the story of who should go first i think you should go first this time around all right i'll go first not me but it is me today i have operation world deafening eclipse which is a bit more on the nose than the operations usually are titled you know like they're fighting the nightside eclipse or no they weren't in this session so maybe it was a bit of a mislead um i'm already confused yeah there we go point being last time uh we talked about how the mpoc had basically uh armed an orc war band in the hopes that they would attack the nightside eclipse in the neighboring deathlands and after the orc war band's war chief was replaced by a capricious doppelganger the warband, in fact, headed north and began raising the human lands. And so last episode, our heroes, uh, Alistair and Furnace, Valfaran Draglin Guy, uh, Mealy Goodberry, and Magnus, they uh, took care of business in terms of that doppelganger. But the damage had already been done, and so it was. Uh, this operation was about uh, handling that aftermath and containing it such that the orcs did not proceed to just, like, completely decimate the, uh, human population in the north, which 
was a bit late for that. I mean, they done a lot of damage, let's put it that way. And so, uh, in this operation, it's funny because at this point, there was still this idea that, like, the MPOC was top secret. Um, you know, they influenced things in this world of Drail, but people didn't know about it, or I, ideally most people didn't know about it. They were kind of rumored it was like a conspiracy theory. Turns out it was true. Anyways, the MPOC, they, because they operated in secrecy at this point, they deployed the team to basically head off a rampaging section of the war, of the orc war band um in secret effectively like imagine the humans are all sort of like gathered in their uh you know their sanctuaries and their defenses and whatnot and they're waiting for that clash of the enemy to come and they're like exhausted and beleaguered and then for some reason that that wave just never comes. And the reason is because outside, um, uh, far ahead of the expected front lines, uh, the MPOC agents that we are following deployed and uh, took care of business. So this was my first time running in 5e like a, a battle scenario, really, like sort of an open-ended thing. And there was a lot of, like... I gave the characters a lot of control of how they were setting it up. And so the way it worked out was you had these orcs rampaging through uh, basically like medieval city streets. And then the players set up um, effectively blockades of just like junk crates, smashed wagons, whatever they could to sort of create a bottleneck in that... uh, in in the streets and even uh kind of maze them if you will so that they're like having to pass through more than one blockade but and then as they were doing that they took sort of uh special positions around the area so of course Alistair who was now like a level six warlock uh fiend pack warlocked had access to fireball and so that is a phenomenal spell to be throwing at a group of orcs that are all stuck in one place on a street um in addition he had like the ability to cast a pretty potent uh scorching ray i think he'd also he had um he might have taken i think it's a feat spell sniper or or something he had spell sniper at some point and that got pretty out of control point being um it was a very tactical defense that they mounted. Uh, effectively, they chose a place in an urban landscape, and I let them plan out some of the, like, okay, how do you want this battle to be structured? And they set up, like, the street with the blockades in it, and then they asked, like, so what are the buildings around, like? And they picked out areas where they would position their casters and their uh, ranged fighters. Um, Did you use a then, map for uh, this? Yeah, I uh, I was definitely using like a a grid. I think at the time I was just using like graph paper. Uh, just show them the graph paper. Classic graph. We'd have like pencil. I mean, it's too small is the trick. Uh, I have a great um, uh, Piazzo the or Piazzo or the the guys who make Pathfinder. They put out a phenomenal. Uh, fold out grid map that is uh, dry erase 
Um, can't rec recommend it enough. I believe you will find it on Amazon under Baby Toys for some reason. <laughs> uh, it's a really ongoing joke. Not Baby's toy, guys. This this phenomenal uh, role playing accessory is has been categorized under Baby Toys, as far as I was told. It's just um, spiteful, but, yeah. is what that is. Yeah. Um, I got it though. I mean, I got it after uh, a friend of mine used his in his sessions for ages, and um, I finally got one of my own. And like, I always have it with me for some Dungeons and Dragons. It's great. You don't even have to fold the whole thing out if you just want to do like a small thing. You just keep it in one square or fold it out just a little bit. It's phenomenal. That sounds awesome. Phenomenal. Ba -ba -ba -da -ba. Phenomenal. Ba -ba -da -ba. It's phenomenal. Um, so yeah, basically they did this incognito defense against orcs. Very kind of classic fantasy adventure battle. Um, again, you know, didn't uh, didn't have a DMG. Didn't have a lot of guidance on how Five E worked at the time. So I was just figuring things out. It was so. Uh, is this like a Helm's like, okay, Deep scale kind of battle? Well. well Way smaller because it was like a squad of four people taking down this like f last wave. Basically, I'd say it was more like if the Battle of Helm's Deep, Deep, the Helm's Deep, got to the like got down to the last minute and everybody was hiding in Helm's Deep and like sure that the orcs were gonna win and then like you know Gandalf didn't do like a big charge down the thing. Spoiler alert, by the way, but. Um, you know, there wasn't, like, a big spectacular savior. It's just, like, suddenly the orcs just, like, just got killed. No one knows who did it. Ah. And people come out and they're like, what the heck? So how many, and, how many uh, enemies were involved here? I feel like... Mm, I want to say it was at least, like, a dozen orcs... Uh, I was probably playing around with like uh, maybe one of the war chiefs um, and maybe some side monsters or something. Uh, I think generally I would have had things that were sort of in the like I, I'm I'm not sure off the top of my head what the average health for an orc is. But, you know, it's sufficient that when Alistair threw a fireball like it did serious damage when you run a big battle like something on the scale of helm's deep uh, which i've done as well um well how do you how do you set about running that in a way that sort of keeps things interesting keep things moving i've talked in the past about how i find that combat can really slow a story down uh, and the the bigger the combat, the more enemies. Do you run large-scale battles like that, like fighting individual enemies, or do you group them and do sort of like, you know, treating a, a horde as a single opponent? I've kind of um, played around with different things because, you know, I think over the course of my time running 5e, I've only run so many battles but like i've run enough of them that like each time i try to improve on the last 
Um, this one I would say was like very small scale, but I have tried to run very large pitched battles, invasions, that sort of thing. And so I think, I think a large part of it is like just combat by itself is like that. That's not really doable. It, it, it like you, you can do it, but it gets like pretty boring. Um, there needs to be something, something special about the encounter. And so I think the best way to do it, um, is you sort of have the narrative that there is a lot of battle going on around and you have a lot of like NPCs fighting hostiles that are not necessarily like in the combat. Like if you were to put it on a grid map, like you wouldn't put those guys down. That would be all sort of narrative, but then what the players are doing is they're being sent to like key objectives and they're being put in specific positions that are like, oh, uh, this squad really needs to make a retreat. So you need to make sure that you hit, like you hit every enemy each round until the squad makes their retreat so that the enemy is occupied with you. Or, you know, um, you have to take down an enemy siege re- weapon that's making a lot of trouble or a giant monster siege weapon. It's more like, you know, uh, you put some enemy soldiers around it, but then you give, you know, a damage threshold and a health and armor class and, uh, vulnerabilities and stuff to the weapon, depending on what it is. You know, I think it's, um, the, the thing is I have done more outwardly more just straight up like battlefield you put down your guys i give them like a bunch of sort of allied npcs that are fighting alongside them and i put down a whole bunch of hostiles and like even if you have a bunch of different enemy types it it really gets to be a slog i've gotten to the point where like as much as possible i will cut down those uh sections like just try and like do the either do the the sort of grand strategy of it or like the grand math of it really um behind the scenes or in my head and just like keep it to just like some very immediate experiences that the players are having and which are like have variety cool that's a, I think that's a really good way to approach it. And it's similar, like you have a very similar philosophy on it to what I was talking about, where it's like, just keep things moving, uh, keep things narrative driven, don't linger too long on the math and the technical side of combat. Yeah, it's funny because, um, like I say, this uh, Operation World Deafening Eclipse was, it, it was small scale, like it was still, like I was not confident enough as a DM to like really do a huge pitched battle at that time. In the end, it was like basically just one encounter. Um, I may have done like a few waves or something. I can't exactly remember, but, uh, you know, just the stuff I was working on today and that I've been working on recently has sort of focused on, I, I have been writing stuff that's been more like, large-scale battle-based, and, uh, yeah, it's definitely something that I've, I would say I have, uh, 
I've developed the technique over time and it's like still developing. I still, I think these are the sessions where I have the most trouble deciding like, because I am effectively making myself do a lot of the background math in my head, I'm having a lot of trouble making the decisions so that they're fair, like so that it doesn't feel like I've already made up the outcome of the battle in some ways. I think one part of that is like, now a large part of it for me would be, and, and this doesn't really apply to Operation World Deafening Eclipse, but now a large part of it for me is about making the players attached to NPCs that are going into the fight beforehand. Because if they have characters that they really want to see survive, like that really changes the dynamic in a big way and a, a very uh a very good like um charged way it adds a lot of momentum to the story i asked about that because uh i was thinking back upon all my many days many experiences as a dm and i was remembering that one of the first campaigns that i ran as a dm which would have been about 20 years ago now and uh it was very inspired by Lord of the Rings, and the main party had sort of a similar variety of characters to Lord of the Rings, but not specifically like the Fellowship. But there was a spellcaster, there was a ranger, there was uh, like sort of a barbarian fighter type, and uh, they were questing to find, I believe it was pieces of a key. Uh, but the players kept i i kept doing these smaller encounters because like you i was still getting comfortable with like dming and using this the gaming system and uh, i kept doing these smaller encounters and the players kept demanding some lord of the rings style big battles because of course around 20 years ago was around when lord of the rings was coming out as well and they wanted like the big hordes and i remember running like a big swarm of orcs want to say like 20 orcs and they start everybody started getting bored and losing interest and i i all that always stuck with me because i was like they don't really want like lord of the rings where we're gonna hold this fort for two days straight and you know cut down orc after orc what they want are like to feel cool in the broad strokes of the story and as you said yeah. have those meaty little moments that stick with you. Have your your Legolas uh, skateboarding down the steps, shooting arrows moments. Exactly. I was just about to say is like you need to part of it as a DM. Like if you just give them the enemies and they come at the them and like there's the cover there. Like there's some tactics there, but it will only get you so far. And yeah, at at a point they'll get bored and and what you really need to provide is you need to set up the set piece basically you need to be like oh there's um, escalation there's got to be like escalating there's stakes. these chains there's these chains tied to the to the battlements and you could swing down and make a special attack or something like that and then they're like oh hell yeah and then you know it takes off um i want to talk about something else which is going to get me on a whole other topic uh, which is at this point in my game, I would have definitely introduced 
the big guy behind the Empoch, uh, the administrator, the founder. And um, this gets me into uh, the subject of DMPCs, which is something I'm very fascinated in, is fascinated by is uh, dungeon master PCs like the the dungeon master uh, not quite self-insert always, although it sometimes is. Um, but, you know, the dungeon master wants their character in the story. And how people approach this, like, I find it such a natural thing for dungeon masters to do that I love seeing the different ways that people approach it. And um, it really fascinates me, like, when it works and when it doesn't. So to back up a bit, uh, talking about my setting and my game, at this point, basically, the MPOC is facing, like, it, we, we're sort of meeting the first tilt, where it's like, the MPOC was this super spy organization, and then they made a mistake. Like, somewhere along the line, the intel, the intel analysts or something messed up, and it's resulted in, like, huge casualties in the human territories when they wanted um, war to go towards the nightside eclipse and the undead territory. So at this point, the stakes were high enough that I would have definitely introduced the uh, head honcho for the Empoch, who's named Odium. Uh, and Odium, like my players immediately recognized Odium as my DMPC. Like, they, they hear the name and they're like, oh, that's going to be, like, a guy who gives us quests. That's going to be a guy who knows a lot about what's going on in the main story and who will, like, help us get into that. And it's also, it's going to be, like, Tom's favorite character, basically. <laughs> um, that, and, and that is also an aspect of the DMPC which I find really fascinating, is that I, I don't think that's necessarily always true. Uh, certainly for me things have evolved where I've become as attached to or more attached to other characters as well as Odium, uh, even though he remains in my game. But going back to these sort of origins, um, so one thing about it is like, uh, we've talked about Mia Lee Goodberry and how she's from this other plane where she was basically... Uh, kidnapped and sold and then the MPOC ended up she ended up in service to the MPOC and now you know there's a point where Nessa or sorry Mealy confronted her sort of higher ups in the MPOC and said like so I do I just work for you forever and I like to have the MPOC be like no you can leave whenever you want like you want to uh, you should be being a super spy because you want to be, because there's something in it for you. And what was in it for her, she decided, was like, because the MPOC is an, uh, an extraplanar organization or an interplanar organization um, that got their hands on her in the first place, she reasoned that they'd be able to get their hands on the guy who kidnapped her in the first place, uh, who was like a tyrant from her homeworld. And so she arranged with Odium to have this guy sort of snatched from his homeworld, brought to Mia Lee, and then, like, face judgment at her hand. She executed him. She was pretty—I mean, she was basically a klepto as well, so 
she wasn't the soundest character that we ever had in the group. But, um, you know, this was another thing that, like, necessitated Odium being a character. And the thing about Odium is that in this setting, the way it works is Odium is, like, he's the head of the Empok, you know? But to see him, when the characters first meet him, he's basically, he looks like infirm to the point of like, can't, like, like barely alive. Like, um, I sort of think of like, um, do you know Fallout New Vegas? Yeah. Do you ever find house in that? I don't think I did. Oh, when, okay, so if you do find him, he's basically, like, cryogenically sustained and, like, basically a living corpse. Um, Odium, I, like, I, I took some inspiration from that, and a large part of it is, like, Odium is basically, he's, like, the head guy, he's very, very powerful, but at this point, he just looks, like, on death's door, very sick. He had this sort of, um... One thing about Odium is that I always described him as being sort of like no part of his body was ever visible. Like he'd always have crazy huge like goggles on and like a crazy breathing mask on and just like layers of cloaks and robes and stuff. And, it, you know, obviously that would set up some like, man, what is Odium? Whatever. Um, I, I was actually like, about to ask you what race he was, but yeah. Yeah, uh, I mean... I never, the thing is, he was never uh, someone that I really had to stat out, is the thing. But we'll we'll get to that in a moment. Just, like, um, as another point of inspiration, uh, a large part of the inspiration is um, in Planescape Torment, there is a major character that is basically uh, Chris Avalone, the writer's DMPC, um, Ravel, uh, Puzzlewell, a hag, who, when you meet her, she is in a state that's, like, um, she's kind of, like, restrained by, like, uh, a magical thicket, basically, like, like, thorny vines, and I definitely took aspects of that for Odium, like, I had him basically on an IV, which he was connected to by, like, you know, some sort of weird alien plant. Um, and yeah, so, and, and like, I say that about Ravel Puzzle well because like Chris Avalone has then inserted some version of that character into like all of his major RPGs. And, uh, you know, that's that's what the DMPC basically is, is like, uh, this, is, this is my voice in the story and it's <laughs> always going to be this character and... Uh, you know, it's always going to be there. So, so one of the things that I find is very important if you're going to do a DMPC, because I've seen a situation where... So, I think when people introduce a DMPC to their game, I think the most common problem they have is that the players just want to kill them. Um, whether <laughs> really? This is you think so? Yeah, now, whether this is because this character is hyper-powerful, either because the DM made that way or because they're, you know, the DM's favorite, 
or if it's because um you know it's just too heavy-handed it's just too too much of a self-insert like i think I, all hmm. of these i, th- I feel like I th- my dmpcs think... differ greatly but do go on well this is the thing is that the key with odium is that he's so sickly there would be no accomplishment in defeating him like if a character just like hit him with a scorching ray it would just be like well yeah you you burn him up <laughs> like he and and like they like he just you know i think that a dmpc has to be kind of um you know they they can be powerful or they can be like all knowing but um you have to have them in such a place that like they don't seem like a threat to the players or anything it's like there's something uh, my example of this is uh ario speedwagon robert edward owens speedwagon <laughs> from jojo's bizarre adventure he shows hey, a, new, up. a new season of that just went up on netflix huh Oh my god! I got a. They finally got season no, three. No, it's on? just season two. Whereas they had only had season one on before. Oh my god! I I thought they had season. I don't know how they're dividing it up. Oh 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 no! Maybe they're releasing. What I know is the third arc as season two. Anyways, that's all a huge thing for a different podcast about anime. Um, no, Ario Speedwagon, he shows up. And he looks like a badass. He's a huge dude. His name's Ario Speedwagon. He's like the head of a gang. He's got a buzzsaw top hat. Um, he uses it once. And then he just like falls head over heels in love with the main character. Uh, and like just becomes his like his goofy sidekick. And like... As soon as real action starts happening in the storyline, like he he stops being any sort of badass and just becomes sort of like an overexpository coward. Like he just is constantly explaining everything that's happening and he's just terrified by all of it. <laughs> he's uh you know, he's streetwise, he's very well informed and uh he's always one step ahead, but man Everything just scares the shit out of him. And you wouldn't think so, considering he's a huge guy named Ario Speedwagon with a buzzsaw top hat. But for me, that's like what a DMPC has to be is, you know, you can make him like the cool DM character that you want, but like you can't have that character lording over the players in any way or else they're just going to want to shoot him in the head. Um, and then, you, you know, that that fight is not fun because theoretically, if you are that passionate about your DM PC, you're just going to start fighting back and then you're just fighting with your players. Like, um, ideally, you want someone that is like you 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 put them in harm's way and you trust that the characters are not going to shoot them in the head because why bother that's my philosophy on it <laughs> man you got some sadistic players uh 
I'm gonna need a man. I I also um I'd like to just say calling back to something before you asked me about doing uh villainous speeches and I was saying how like my villainous speeches get one line in before a PC makes a smarmy quip. Um, most recent example that I pointed out was fools. You think I've come this far simply to be slain by you? Yes. Like millisecond timing just like yes they said that (laughs) i'm gonna need a definition of a dmpc like is it just a dm surrogate pc in the game um i think so it can be a self-insert but i don't think it necessarily always is. I don't think the the best ones are. I think the best ones are just like, um, hmm. like support. Yeah. Yeah. Like I always think of them as being quest givers. That you're kind of like, you know, I I think uh like like Forgotten Realms has Elminster, who's supposed to be the most powerful wizard like ever or something um but you know he's never he's he's not doing the dungeons and dragons adventures i mean he is in his books but you know in dungeons and dragons adventures he's like a very powerful npc who like advises the players but is like um i am far too above these affairs of i cannot interfere in the affairs of mortal men um and like i think like that that's just kind of annoying like that that does encourage your player to kind of uh lash out at them by um, your definition though do dmpcs have to be like powerful characters they have to like if it's not physical power they at least have to have the advantage of like very I would say a large part of it is, like, knowing stuff that the DM knows, basically. Like, you know, being aware of things in the setting, just, like, super aware of things in the setting. And then, uh, you know, I think... But they have to be a PC. They have to be, like, on the side of the good guys. This isn't just an NPC. This is, like, an active... A, a character that plays an active I think it part is an NPC. in the good guy's side. I think it is an NPC. It's just a specifically designated NPC that's like, that's the DM's favorite. That's the DM's PC that they made. That so is why, like do your players, the most why do your players want to kill your, your DM PCs, Tom? What did you do to your players that make them want to kill your DM PCs? Oh, I should say. Well, okay. I could, like, like back in high school, um, my DMPCs were totally insufferable, like, uh, wish fulfillment bullshit in Vampire and stuff. And, like, I would totally understand why any PC would want to kill that guy. Um, that said, like, I feel that at this point with my, like, the techniques I've developed to make the PCs not uh want to kill the dmpc like they've worked like 
nobody has ever tried to like in one game in a different game under under dif- different circumstances somebody shot odium in the leg because they didn't know who he was and they were very confused but no one's ever attacked odium in the mpoc games in in these games of of 5e since i introduced him even though he is like 100 percent the dmpc um I am speaking mainly on my experience of other people's use of DMPCs in addition to, like, my past use of DMPCs. Um, Like, my brother, I think, attempted to deploy a DMPC and the uh, players just totally turned on. (laughs) But I I think, like like I say, it's, it's not like what do my DMPCs do? I think it's just a general DMPC thing where it's like, players are always trying to kill them because like why do you get a self-insert powerful guy dm get out of here you're not playing (laughs) um i will say that my players do on occasion or have been known to on occasion attempt to kill my dmpcs but it's not because i make my dmpcs particularly powerful sometimes i give them like positions of authority like one that comes to mind is i i did a campaign that was heavily based on uh, the tv series firefly and the movie serenity that sort of space westerny campaign um and my dmpc and that was the captain of their ship so he had some authority but he wasn't like stacked against them you know it, it wasn't anything like that he could just occasionally try to pull rank uh The reason my players tend to try and kill my DMPCs is because in Minds of Metal and Wheels, the steampunk campaign, uh, Peckinpah, who turned against them, I had treated him as, like, I tried to make it obvious that he was the DMPC. So they didn't actually try to kill him outright because they thought I was, like, really invested in him as my favorite character, which made him turning on them all the more bitter and awful. So yeah, um that was I think I've basically summed up all my views on DMPCs. I just think it's a very interesting topic. I think that's definitely, you know, if your DMPC betrays the party once, that I think that may be something for concern is like they never forget. Yeah, it took a very long time before. In fact, I will say uh it took a very long time and like a couple of people in the gaming group like moved away and two people took their place so it even took like some people leaving for them to finally trust my dmpcs again yeah you need a new blood and then you can trick them again (laughs) so what about your session eight uh so before i get into my session eight i wanted to say that uh This was, like, I was going through my notes on the Steampunk campaign, and I realized that this is about the time where I was taking fewer and fewer notes as a DM. And I actually wanted to ask you about that. Uh, Do you, like, take down notes on the session, like... like while things are wrapping up after the players have just gone home or do you like fill it in before the next session when do you take your notes do you take many notes so so 
Um, back when I was doing the operations that we've been talking about these past few episodes, um, my notes were pretty sparse. But again, that's because I was working with very little. I'd be like, I want to use these monsters on this page. I want to use this many of them. I'll do this. I mean more and like after you've run an adventure, what do you note right. down from what happened, if anything? So, yeah, I would I would note down, um, again, like in, in the early days, uh, the notes would be pretty sparse. But nowadays... I do a lot of pre-session notes um, because I'm like harvesting a lot of content from different different modules and wherever I can find stuff that, to like spice up encounters. And then I um, I keep track of like basically so an op, especially these days, is like rarely just one session it's usually more than one but I, I i like have a whole list of like every op that i write down next to it this is actually how i like refer to my notes for this podcast is i have every op i've run i have like a one-line summary of like the key things that happened in it the other thing is that as I'm running the ops, especially now that I have a lot of notes, um, as I'm running the game, like every time something is covered, like an encounter or someone picks up an item that I put in it, like I go into the notes and I just like put a check mark on that thing in the notes, um, which leads to a lot of like pages of notes that are just covered in check marks. <laughs> That's a really smart way to do. I like your like list with like a one sentence summary. I should really start doing that more because uh, the reason I bring this up is typically when I'm taking notes about adventures I'm running, uh, first when I'm planning, I will only write down like, I want to say sort of like half to two thirds of the adventure and maybe a short little end point if there's a very specific ending that I want to happen. But most of the time, what I'm doing is, because my players tend to go off book, and because I delight in them sort of getting creative and finding interesting solutions to problems, mostly what I do when I write an adventure is I write everything up until the major conflict of the adventure, and then I sort of let them figure out where it goes from there, eventually winding up at the ending I had planned. Or sometimes I just leave it open-ended and let them determine what the ending of the adventure is going to be. Um, and then when I'm taking my notes, uh, usually when there's like a decision noted down or some sort of plot fork, I will write down like a sentence or two about what happened. Um, Similar to you, if there's like a specific item that a player picks up, I might note down what player picks it up, but not always. I'm not always the best about it. And so the reason I bring all of this up is I realize that this is about the time in the steampunk campaign 
where I was taking fewer notes about what the players were doing. And uh, I wish I could tell you why that is. In To my recollection, it's because um, the adventures started getting longer and started taking up multiple sessions. So it was more like I was just taking note of where along the story they were and then picking it up the next time. And so little bits and pieces didn't get filled in. And uh, I also bring this up because... I realize that these very players are probably going to end up listening to this podcast. And guys, if I got something wrong, I'm sorry, man. I'm sorry. I was I was just thinking earlier, like, man, I hope that people don't feel that I'm just focusing on Alistair and Furnace too much. But it's because I know how to play a warlock, so I had a lot of insight <laughs> into what his character worked like. That's the thing, like. right? Is we, I know what spells he had. It has to be said, because I do know that, like, I'm I'm sure some of the people who played in the campaign I am describing, I'm sure they're going to listen to at least part of this. And I, I want to make it clear, like, if I've forgotten a big moment, this is nothing personal. Part of what I love, so much of what I love about D&D and RPGs is, like, Everybody has their own side of it. Everybody has their own story. Um, you know, there's that cliche where it's like we're all the main character of our own story. But that is literally the case in D&D. Is you're the protagonist of the campaign. But so are all the other players. And that's sort of the beauty of it. So I guarantee I have forgotten something that happened to Cunningham that was especially noteworthy. And if Phelan listens to this, he'll be like, yeah, but what about the time I did that awesome thing? And so, I don't know, guys, I'm sorry. I guess the point of this podcast is more to talk about the dungeon mastering perspective on it than necessarily the specifics of these campaigns. We're just using these campaigns as a launch point for conversations about things like DMBCs, right? Unless I've misunderstood... If the podcast was just the campaign, this would just be another live play podcast, and I'd have no idea how to get people to listen to it. Um, I do want to say you reminded me uh, that there was something that would be critical to mention for Magnus's character in my game that would have happened by now, which is that at some point um, he got shot he he got like a critical hit with an arrow from a goblin or something and he decided that he took it in the eye and so he spent he he was one-eyed the rest of the game like at this point Badass. magnus has one eye and he's a drunken paladin of garador the blind god of destruction so i genuinely appreciate when my players make choices like that cuz it's like there's no benefit don't have him only having one eye except that it's fucking cool and it adds character. Speaking of one eye, again, before I dive into uh, Minds of Meddling Wheels, one more tangent, I started reading Orkstain, and that is metal. metal. It's a great comic. I actually just wanted to say, while we were talking about notes, um, I actually pulled out here my little uh, Empoch history notes which is where i collect all these uh single line op descriptions i just wanted to since there's just one line i wanted to run through the ones we would have covered so far just give you an idea of what these notes are like so we started with uh operation angelic process 
wait, no, story. We started with the MPOC finest recruited, uh, Alistair and Furnace, Valfaron, Draglin Guy, Mealy, Goodberry, and Magnus. And then uh, Wenton entered the Nightside Eclipse undercover. Operation Angelic Process. That was the first one. Uh, they seized a Nightside Eclipse relic. Operation Profound Lore. Coyote was captured in Settler's Green, and they rescued him. Operation Sand Promise. Tusk, Arthur, and Foob were recruited, and the Nightside Eclipse relic was given to the Orc Warboss, and the Warband took off. Operation Millennium Wait. Wenton got returned from the undercover assignment and extracted by our heroes. And uh, the Orc Warboss was assassinated and replaced by a doppelganger. Operation Summer Resonance. Uh, fallout of Coyote's capture contained. That was the Crimson Tower rumors began. Operation Killing Joke. The Isle of Labyrinth was overrun by the Nightside Eclipse. Operation Minor Movement, the doppelganger leading the Orc Warband was assassinated. And finally, today's op, Operation World Deafening Eclipse, secret defense of Austin against Orc Warband was mounted and the Orc Warband was defeated. I don't think I ever said that the human settlement is called Austin. Like Texas? No, it's spelled like O-S-T-O-N. So like Boston. With no B, yeah. Got it. Seems like a normal name for a human city. Anyway, sorry. Now it's time for your story. So when we last left our heroes, uh, they had been stranded on Mars. They finally made it to Mars. They overtook Hudson Kane's fleet. They made it to Mars first. Uh, when in when they crashed there. Pilot died in the in the wreck. They took shelter from a sandstorm in a, a ruin, sort of like a, a temple of some kind, and they learned a whole bunch about Martian history. And uh, then they set out to explore. The next day, they spotted a, a big field of liftwood at the top of a really high plateau with a, a sheer edge to it. Uh, and so they followed the the cliff edge and. Suddenly, in the distance, they spotted uh, a, a city, Moss Eisley Spaceport. Uh, and that was sort of the image I wanted to conjure up, of course, for the players. Once again, going back to heavy inspiration from A New Hope, but just like a big settlement, uh, you know, much, much bigger than, uh, than just like a tiny little, tiny little area. I wanted to have a, a significant population there. And ships, like, flying to and fro, obviously a lot of activity, basically sort of pulling the rug out from the players, initially making them think that Mars was dead, uh, and then, oh no wait, it is very much alive. And um, for this adventure, I wanted it to... This is what I was saying about my notes as well, is I really wanted to let the players uh, just sort of explore. You know, I wanted to just set them loose and see what they did, uh, in part because now that they were on Mars, like they'd finally, they'd beaten Kane to their destination, they finally arrived at this place that, that has been built up and they've been wanting to get to, they're finally here, 
but they don't have a means back off the planet. Their ship was wrecked when they crashed. Uh, and Kane, of course, still has the lantern in his possession. Gee, I wonder what that could lead to. Um, and so uh, part of that discombobulated, like, they're cut off feeling was me just going like, okay, what do you do? I just sort of take a back seat. Uh, rather than prompting them where I'm like, you see a this, or you, you know, you're approached by this person. I just sort of went, okay, go ahead. And let them approach it whatever way they wanted. And uh, in preparation for this, it, whenever I do this, whenever I cut my players loose, uh, I always feel the need to, like, prepare even more than I normally would just so that I have a sense, like, I have kind of an idea, you know, there there are only so many things that players can do, so I have kind of an idea of a few different encounters that they might run into depending on which way they go with it. And, um, if I had to sort of give a, you know, I've been talking about, I don't know if there are official labels for the different types of adventures. Uh, there probably are in various DMs guides. So if I'm, if the labels I spout off are used somewhere and I don't reference it, I'm not trying to say, I'm not trying to claim ownership, but things like, you know, a location-based adventure I've brought up before where you just sort of have a location all mapped out with different points that activate encounters and you let the players approach it whatever way they want. Um, in this case, it's sort of like that, but on a grander scale. Uh, and if I had to give it a label, I'd call it sort of like a discovery adventure because what I was doing here is actually what I did in the very first session, not session zero, like the first adventure, which is I had to establish this whole new civilization and really this whole new setting. Um, and much like the first adventure in the campaign, I wanted to make sure to plant all these ideas of imagery in the players' heads now so that they automatically think of that stuff whenever they're doing something on Mars. And I don't have to reiterate too much of this. So a lot of this adventure was describing things that they saw uh, the two smart heroes in the party, uh, Ellsworth Forrestor and uh, Mike's character, Dietrich Abendroth, like they were rolling a lot of knowledge checks and like making a, a lot of sort of deductions based on what they were seeing. They, they tried to sort of first hide and like approach from a distance and observe. And so, so much of this was just sort of like scouting, reconnaissance and description. And, uh, so to establish this whole Martian civilization, um, I mean, it's tough enough, right? When you're already dealing with like a steampunk setting and now you got to throw in this whole completely alien civilization. So for this one, I poached loads and loads of stuff from the Space 1889 rule books. Um, and Thankfully, Mars is like a major setting <clears throat> in Space 1889. So not only do you have several chapters on Mars in the core rule book, but then there are also uh, source books called Beast Men of Mars, Canal Priests of Mars, Caravans of Mars, The Cloud Captains of Mars, um, uh, Playing Fields of Mars, The Step Lords of Mars, just loads and loads of resources to draw from. 
And uh, in summary, rather than like go through all, the, I gotta tell you, even more so than D and D, I find that the Space eighteen and eighty nine rule books, like they really, really go hardcore on the world building. They have like complete planetary maps of Mars. They have uh, a whole section here on the Martian water cycle. Uh, they have like they really go into like the ecology, um, settling pools at regular interview intervals along every Grand Canal. The banks of the main channel widen and the bottom deepens, creating a large settling pool. Um, but in a nutshell, the way uh, I treated Mars, borrowing the majority of it from uh, Space 1889, was sort of like a mix of uh, ancient Rome and some ancient Egypt thrown in, and then a dash of elf culture, like Lord of the Rings style sort of elven culture, which means, you know, lots of curved lines. And the Martians themselves, the majority of the Martian races, uh, are sort of bipedal humanoids, and I just treated them like I would elves. They have big sort of almond-shaped eyes, but instead of elven ears, they have sort almost like gill-like protrusions running up the backs of their jaws and along their ears or where their ears would be. So they're sort of, they have sort of a Lovecraftian kind of fishy appearance to them, but also sort of like elves, and um, they can swim really well, and so Mars has loads of different like aqueducts and canals. This is sort of the, the Roman thing that I wanted to evoke. Uh, and I also wanted to uh, draw a lot on, like, John Carter of Mars, kind of. Uh, one of the neat things about the world building in Space 1889 for Mars is that they state that Mars uh, actually doesn't have a lot of metals uh, that can be mined or used for a lot of things. So they rely more on wood, but they have liftwood. So the aesthetic for a lot of Martian technology, it's uh, some, it, it is like John Carter. It's something that everyone's familiar with, but I can't think, I don't know if there's actually a name for this aesthetic, but I'm thinking of like, like Return of the Jedi kind of a thing, like wooden skiffs, but they're also spaceships kind of a thing. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah like a hover kind of skiff, like but it's got like a ship's mast on it, that sort of thing. Yeah, it's kind of like tribal sci-fi. Yeah, tribal sci-fi is kind of a good way to put it. Um, So there's a lot of that stuff because they use liftwood to build so many of their vehicles because it just grows like wood. Their wood is anti-gravitational. But there are, I mean, Space 1889 really does a great job here because they have all sorts of, you know, the standard boats and barges and... uh, it's It was fun whipping this out and being able to show the players, like, give them visuals of a lot of things that they're seeing. There are lots of really great uh, illustrations of just sort of cityscapes and, like, a canal from afar leading into a distant city. So I can just pull that up, and the players instantly have a sense of what they're looking at. And so they decided that they... You know, obviously they needed to sort of get into this settlement and look around and, you know, maybe they can find some safety. Maybe they can find a person to contact. They wound up, the smart heroes wound up basically settling on, they need to warn the Martian authority 
that Kane and his fleet are coming, and they probably have bad intentions, right? They want to conquer. Um, and so the players, uh, first they, they tried sort of disguising themselves and hiding their faces and just kind of like making their way into the, uh, the Martian settlement, but immediately they, like, none of them were, uh, particularly adept, like, we didn't have any rogue characters in the party, so they were immediately spotted and brought before just, like, the local authority, uh, you know, sort of military, sort of city guard. Uh, but the big problem was, of course, that they couldn't understand each other. And uh, who was it? It was, I think it was Dietrich Abendroth. But one of the players made a very good diplomacy role without using any, like, verbal diplomacy. And, you know, whatever, they made this good role, they don't know what the Martians are trying to tell them, but they know that it worked, and so the Martians lead them into this room that's uh, basically sort of like one of those, you know, typical harem rooms with a lot of big cushions, and what was essentially a gigantic hookah pipe, and they all smoked from the hookah pipe, and smoking whatever that is, it's like a spice melange, basically, to rip off something from Dune, um, that allowed them to understand and converse with the Martians. And uh, so they immediately explained the situation. Uh, the local authority guy, who was like the head of the, the local militia, agreed to take them uh, to meet with the King of Mars. Uh, this is King Selden II, again. Like, so there's probably a, an entire rule book of history here. Um, and so they agreed, like, yes, we have to take you to the Martian capital. You have to meet with our king and our military advisors, and we have to prepare, uh, you know, to uh, to intercept Hudson Kane and his fleet. And also there are all the, you know, sort of the celebrations and the formalities of two species making contact with each other for the first time. And uh, now, of course, that the players could understand the Martians, uh it was what I, this, I sort of treated this almost like, uh, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom before everything turns bad. Like, they are suddenly, they're, you know, they're treated really well and, you know, you know the Martians sort of break out the Martian booze and you do, you know, uh, basically I took a, a whole bunch of opportunities to describe sort of how things are different. You know, this is what we drink on Mars, the Bhutan spice. Uh, is the flavorful and mildly narcotic blend of Bhutan plants which grow by the cities of Boreosirtis League. Uh, and it allows you to speak this and blah, 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 and just sort of answer any questions that the players have about Mars as they travel by hover skiff along one of the long Martian canals towards the Martian capital, the name of which I, I have around here somewhere. I'll try to see if I can find it. But... Um, that was basically the whole adventure in a nutshell. It was not, it was, uh, there was really no major con combat. The players didn't really try to fight because they were like strangers in a strange land. Um, and it was just like a lot, it was basically a huge sort of information dump. Just filling in the players on any questions they have about Mars and setting up this sort of, it's like, it wasn't out at the time, but like Asgard from the Thor movies, the Marvel Thor movies, that's the kind of thing that I was trying to evoke as well. Like lots of, sh 
lots of sort of shiny surfaces, but also a lot of organic feeling things and, you know, a real melding of like technology and nature and elves. Yeah, again, elves. And it all wrapped up with them on their way to, uh, to the Martian capital, intent on meeting the King of Mars, King Selden. So, so next session would be going to Mars for you, according to my notes. What do we got next for me is uh, Operation Burning Undertow. Oh, snap. This is a trip to Crystal Guard. That's going to be fun. Going to talk to the elves of the Arctopus. Yeah, at this point in Minds of Metal and Wheels, I was, I'm was i basically lining everything up for what is going to be you know, the big climax. We are talking about sieges. We are talking about you know big battle sequences. Well, basically what I wanted to do um, is I wanted to set it up so that when Kane arrived... There's, like, the Martians are ready, and we get to have sort of an air battle a la Star Wars or, like, Serenity or something like that, where, uh, our, and in that process, I wanted the players to be able to get on board Kane's ship and get the lantern back. So, this was just, like, starting to get the pieces set up, and then next session is going to be setting up those pieces, and finally launching into the big finale. We'll be exploring a bit more Adrail in uh, my game next time. And uh, I just wanted to jump back to something and ask you, who do you think is the DMPC in Big Trouble in Little China? Or who would be? The DMPC in Big Trouble in Little China? Um... Hmm, I feel like this must be a trick question, right? Because, of course, with Big Trouble in Little China, the thing that everybody says about it is that Jack Burton isn't the hero, but he thinks he's the hero. So the temptation would be to say, like, Jack Burton's the DMPC. But I don't know, man. Maybe it's the inverse. Maybe it's um his buddy. What's his buddy name? Wang? Wang. Yeah, that's who I think it yeah. is, honestly. He knows what's going on, unlike a player. Uh, you know, he's got all the knowledge that a DM would have. But also, he's like, you know, Jack Burton uh, gets involved in his quest because supposedly he owes him money. Like, there's this whole idea of, like, it's the NPC that sort of, like, hooks you and drags you along on this never-ending goose It's chase. true, and not only that, but, like... The girl he's trying to save isn't the girl that Jack Burton's trying to save. It's her friend. <laughs> like, he's gonna... You know, they've each got a princess that they can save, too, so that your your PC gets to, to save the girl. Yeah, that... that the whole structure of the the girls and the green eyes and stuff is so absurd in that movie because... Um, they're clearly like it clearly starts off with something else <laughs> it's like something about witness and protection against yep. the triads and stuff and then they're like oh never mind i mean okay so this is obvious um, but then who in a new hope who is the dmpc i mean i guess it's obi-wan yeah eh? he is sort of the driving force but honestly in my campaign it would be chewbacca <laughs> 
interesting because i would i could also see it being a case for like r2d2 oh yeah maybe maybe you know it's interesting you know like you you seem to define dmpcs very much by their functionality like they are the plot dispensers i think yeah i think that's part i think that's a big part of it for me it's it's like how they relate to the pcs um because I don't think there's a lot that's like inherently laudable about just doing a self-insert. It's about making that specially tailored character that is like, uh, it's almost like the flagship character for your story. Though, you know, sometimes you want that to be your villain. But I, I do think it's also like a point in my argument would be that even after Obi-Wan dies, he's still giving advice to the players. Oh, that's true. Use the force. So even if the players had killed him, he'd still be talking to them. <laughs> God, that's annoying. That's even worse. Now I can't get away from him. So are we heading for uh, the corner of that we tavern? Pull up a stool in the tavern of many corners. And the howling wolf with too many legs. It's a pig with too many corners. <laughs> Not me. All right, you you do the first one because last time I did Jagged Alliance and then you got all confused because <laughs> it wasn't a role playing game thing. Says you. I mean, Jagged Alliance though it's not. It's a game. It's a computer game. Is it? Yeah, is it an but, RPG uh, inside of the computer game? I think they made it into like a board okay, game. So that actually, makes sense. it's very bizarre. I I think it would be better as a role playing game, but I mean, I just. I'm just running 5e the way I want to jig it along. Yeah, all right, up, all right. You, know? you get by on the technicality. Anyways, um, Anyways you, you you hit 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 us with it. So for this one, um, I, I'm picking a specific monster from it, but I really just want to talk about the whole module uh, because I ran this one quite a long time ago for some friends. Uh, it is an adventure module called Blood Sugar from the D20 Modern Campaign Heartless. Uh, and the author of the campaign is just Stan. It just says, by Stan, with an exclamation mark. So thank you, Stan, for Blood Sugar. Now, I bring this up because I I ran this campaign for some players. It is using the D20 Modern under, er, Urban Arcana setting, which is basically Shadowrun. So this gives me a chance to talk a little bit more about D20 Modern. Uh, again, the system that I was using to DM the uh, steampunk campaign. Uh, but also, there were some things in this that reminded me of uh, some stuff that you have written. Some modules that you have written, sir. So I wanted to see, I wanted to compare in campaign how, uh, how sort of candy-related and sugar-related uh, encounters compare between because uh, you wrote a module right yeah you're talking about mine module that had a sugar in the name that's what i thought of when you said your module was sugar in the name yep mine was sugar thane sanctum it wasn't by stan it was by me so uh the first to fourth level adventure candy dungeon candy Continue. dungeon um so this is the this is a an adventure for 10th level characters, for 10th level characters, part of the Heartless campaign. The overarching plot of the Heartless campaign is that there's a cult, the Children of Chaos, a religious cult that is 
just causing havoc throughout the city, uh, like magical rituals and vandalism, obstruction of justice, destruction, just, you know, causing chaos, as in the name, the Children of Chaos. And so uh, by this point, this is like the third adventure, the players have been pursuing the cultists, trying to find out, like, who's at the heart of their, their plans and what the, the larger scheme is. And uh, they get some intel that the cult is planning something big for the Halloween carnival that is taking place downtown. And uh, it's I really enjoyed running this one. Uh, the way the plot unfolds is really fun. Uh, basically, the cultists are enchanting candy, and then they're going to... Uh, create these big candy golems and set them loose on the the Halloween fair. And uh, so the players first uh, go and investigate a candy factory that was broken into and they find like evidence of a ritual being performed and like blood in the in the the sugar used to make the candy. Um, and then while they're investigating, the cultists pull up and they start giving away the free candy at the fair and then all hell breaks loose. So the main thing I wanted to, to focus on is, of course, uh, the huge candy golem <laughs> that this campaign features because I love this. This was so fun to have a candy golem and watch the players deal with it. Flavor text says, with, a, with no warning, a giant garishly colored fist smashes outward through the metal skin of the truck as though it were tissue paper. Through the gaping hole steps a creature similar to the little candy monsters that have been running amok, except this one is over 15 feet tall. Um, and it's a huge construct, defensive six, uh, 105 hit points, minus two initiative, plus 10 base attack bonus. And then uh, I'll read the tactics, which is after giving the candy golem the order to attack, the leader waits two rounds, then breaks from the truck and runs for safety during his turn. He tries to mingle with the crowd, so the lead, the cult leader is trying to get away. Um, and it says here, he, you know, heroes can attempt a spot check to see him. The candy golem has instructions to attack the heroes and anyone else who approaches it. Its tactics are very simple. Smash anything that gets in its way. Cause chaos. And uh, so the basically what happened at this point when I was running it, too, is the, the team split up. Basically, all the heavy hitters stuck around and fought the candy golem while the faster players went after the cult leader. Um, but tell me, tell me, Tom, not to not to totally spoil our module, but what what are some of the candy creatures that uh, that people would encounter in uh, the in your module? Did you have a candy golem? It, we had uh, chocolate, chocolate golems, golems. but um, you know it's a lower level uh, adventure. It's like levels one to four, and so it's designed so that like people just getting a hang of the just getting the hang of D and D can conceivably win. Um, so one one important thing of that is like you know golems are a pretty serious deal, but if they're chocolate, they're vulnerable fire. Yeah, ex exactly. Um, we had a bugbear with a big, uh, like he'd broken off a giant candy cane off this candy house and uh, swings it around. Got a, a ever-changing fizzy drink pond. Uh, and uh, we'll better watch out because somewhere 
We got a uh, got ourselves a giant gummy worm. A giant gummy worm. <laughs> oh yeah. Now have you? That's, yeah, that's you probably this, the course, most dangerous thing. Have you ever thing. run it? Uh yeah, yeah. Um, At that moment, did yeah, you pull I, out I've one of those it. five pound gummy worms that you can buy online? Because I would. No, I've um. Well, let's see. I've run it like one and a half times. Uh, the first time I ran it like halfway through, and then uh, people just had to leave, and we never finished. Then another time I ran it, and I think that time the players like skipped the place with the gummy worm. Um, but there, there's like different ways that it can, like, there are effectively three different factions, uh, by the end of it in the candy dungeon. It's a very small, like very simple dungeon, but, uh, gets the job done. Better watch out in that candy workshop though, because mad candy science causes a lot of problems. <laughs> I, I mean, it could could heal you but you could get hit by chocolate chip shrapnel yes and as we see from uh from the blood sugar module uh candy science candy magic can indeed cause a lot of chaos so a plug for the for blood sugar and a plug for was it the sugar thane dungeon uh sugar thane sanctum thane sanctum uh i should mention blood sugar is it's a five-part d20 modern campaign uh, by Stan. It's free online, uh, and I ran the whole thing way back in the day, and it's great. I thought it's it's super fun. Uh, the Heartless series consists of the Peterson Counter-Strike, uh, Blood Sugar, The Dead of Winter, The Final Feast, and Resolutions. The Dead of Winter is another really awesome adventure where the cultists set up like a pop-up soup kitchen, but the soup that they're giving out to the homeless people turns the homeless into zombies. Oh, that's yeah, bad. Yeah, that's a pretty good one. That's real evil. What have you brought to the table? What have I brought to this this wacky table with all these corners? Well, uh, last time uh, we talked a bit about D&D jokes and stuff, and I couldn't think of any, and uh, I still haven't thought of any, but uh, I was uh, reading this... Uh, this... Uh, like some kind of some kind of module i've been reading this module and uh that's my favorite uh, anyway. metallica album some kind of module some kind of some kind of module having trouble finding the thing right uh i was reading a part and then i read a part that made me laugh out loud because i imagined it happening to the characters um so i think part of it was the setup that i just read this garbage piles these piles are slippery masses of waste and garbage that count as difficult terrain. Anyone passing through a square containing a garbage pile must succeed in a DC 10 dexterity acrobatics check or fall prone. Characters that fall into the garbage suffer disadvantage on dexterity stealth checks for two hours or until they are su able to sufficiently wash themselves off with water or prestidig prestidigitation or mm. the like. Chef's kiss. Then I love it. Then just a little bit later, I read, Item Piles. The objects are piled in loose piles that require a DC-10 dexterity acrobatics check to scale or fall prone in an avalanche of junk. 
In addition, handling any of the items requires the character to make a DC 10 Wisdom Madness saving throw or gain a level of madness. This check is only required once every 24 hours, so climbing through a second pile poses no additional risk of madness. But uh, I just had a laugh imagining my players falling in that avalanche of junk and that garbage. That is like exactly the kind of environmental hazard that I love to throw into my adventures. Love that kind of stuff. Gotta have that stuff, have that stuff uh, sitting around. I got another one for you, though, uh, because that was just something funny I'd read earlier. What else I got is uh, just a little uh, random encounter from one of the uh, major adventure book releases from 5th edition. Uh, it's, um, let me see. It's a random encounter. It's if you get a 20 while traveling in the early part of the adventure, I believe. It's an encounter called The Watchful Night. Once... This helmed horror stood watch in the common room of the Inn of the Watchful Night in Billiard. It chooses one character at random, advances to within five feet, and then studies the target for several seconds. If attacked, it fights back, retreating after it loses half its hit points. Otherwise, it follows the chosen character for 1d3 days, guarding its temporary master in combat. At the end of that time, the helmed horror wanders off again. I... Would I, so I've used this random encounter. This is like exactly what I'm talking about. Like th this, um, if you put this in the context of how I used it, which is, it was one of these big battles, and you know I had all the different NPCs and squads that were like there for the PCs to interact with, and then out of nowhere, there's just this like suit of armor, this robot. I, I put a smiley face on it. I had that somebody had drawn a smiley face <laughs> look, on the helmet. It looks so much more friendly. And so this, it doesn't look creepy at all. This helm, Well, this helmed horror with a weird jagged smiley face like carved in or whatever just like wanders out of nowhere towards them in the middle of like a serious like war zone situation and just, uh, you know, hung around, helped him out. And uh, they named him and they were sad to see him they go did. every time and right? uh it's uh it's a great encounter what can i say <laughs> have that friendly robot no. come by no I, I... especially what i especially love is like i used it in a time when the players were on edge at like everything that came their way um because everything that came their way was potentially a squad of bad guys or like a diversion for a squad of bad guys to lay an ambush. Um, but yeah, this, this is just a friendly robot. And, uh, you know, the more on edge your players are, I think the, the better it is to drop the friendly robot on them as a random encounter. I love how, you know, in light of what we discussed last episode, now I know that your players will immediately try to kill the DMPC, but literally any other <laughs> encounter, like, be it friend or no, foe, they, won't, they, they won't will, try like, to kill the DMPC, befriend yeah. that monster and take it with them. I, I think you got the wrong idea. They they don't try to kill my DMPC. I just think DMPCs in general tend oh, to, uh, you know, have a target on them. They've never, they've never tried to kill Odium or anything like that. 
Hey, Tom, why was the dwarf on the tavern roof? Uh, sorry, uh, he was trying to get some moonshine. Yeah, it was not bad. Because it was nighttime. I, I just, I, I'm making stuff up. Someone told him the ale was on the house. Oh, I get it. On the house. I get it. Not me. <laughs> no, but you, but you, you just said you got it. That was. <laughs> no, I don't know. I don't know who that other goblin was. Okay. We, I guess that's it for the episode, eh? Do you have any other D and D jokes? No. That was all I got ready. Is uh, you know, it's funny when players fall in garbage. How uh, <laughs> how many D and D players does it take to change a light bulb? Uh, one to describe the light bulb and five to deliberate over it for two hours. <laughs> Too real, man. Okay. I was going to say, uh, hit me with one it. One to six. <laughs> hey, there you go. I mean, that, fair. I, don't, I, I wouldn't play with six people. That's insane. Yeah, true, true. That's far too many. I mean, maybe you could get. Six, six, including the DM. Into it, but you know, I got, I got, yeah. That's oh my god. Even then, five players. Like I'm in a game with five players. I don't know. I wouldn't run a game with five players. But inevitably, you but, end up uh, running a game with five players. I mean, I know somebody who told me they have ended up running a game with eight players, nah, and I'm I like, dear not, God, what a nightmare. No way. Anyways, uh, so this has been the ninth episode and eighth session of Compare and Campaign. It's not confusing. I've been Tom Lando. Yeah, I'm keeping up with it. I'm Tom Lando. I've been keeping up with it. McGill is our co-host. If you want to reach McGill, you can try our Facebook not page. Me. Uh, yeah. Do you have any info on our Facebook page or it's anything? It's there. Or? There's stuff on it. It's and there. you can reach that's, me through it. If you want to talk to McGill, that's that's how you do it and then as for me actually me is uh, if you want to talk to me directly you can hit up my twitter narnog n-a-r underscore n-o-g uh haven't checked in a while but you know we haven't put up these episodes the handle yet. has no meaning i hear uh-huh. i hear that this is about to change though and we're about to have episodes coming up whatever the case Hopefully you've enjoyed listening and will enjoy listening again on the next episode of Comparing Campaign. Not me.